well, you place this constructing body mind, this mind that fabricates endlessly in front of another person, and you pause, and there's sufficient steadiness of mind, sufficient brightness of, of mind to continue to observe in that pause as the self tries to assert itself and the sense of being in front of another that you are becoming for, in, in a sense, becoming uh, because of. Uh, how do you see me? Who am I? Um, inferior, superior, am I, uh, is what I'm saying useful? Um, I care about the pain you are having. So you're not only fabricating self, you're fabricating other out of the flux, the utter flux of experience, a, a, a self and an other are constantly being constellated by the mind, right? I mean, there's nothing but flux when you get down to it. So if we, we invent everything, the whole tableau of this experience of I am and you are is built out of just rising and vanishing. Of course, that's the case. That's the, the physics or the metaphysics, whatever you want to call it. It's just rising and vanishing. So it's in that, in the simplicity of stillness, but still with the aliveness of interpersonal contact that the emptiness reveals itself right there. Gregory Kramer has been teaching insight meditation since 1980, and in 1995 began offering instruction in insight dialogue, an interpersonal meditation designed to highlight the relational dimensions of the Dhamma. Gregory's teaching emphasizes an integrated path of development, where individual and interpersonal meditation are joined with contemplation, ethical inquiry, and a commitment to kindness. He is the author of Insight Dialogue, The Interpersonal Path to Freedom. Gregory is the founding teacher of the Meta Foundation and leads retreats in North America, Asia, Europe, and Australia. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice as well as your life off of the cushion. I am your host, Ian Whitemar. This podcast is sponsored by the Providence Zen Center, a residential Buddhist community in Cumberland, Rhode Island. The Providence Zen Center provides opportunities for short and long-term residency and holds retreats from one day to three months. For more information, please visit ProvidenceZen.org. Gregory, I'm wondering if you can tell us about how you came to meditation, how you came to the Dhamma, what brought you there, why you stayed. Well, I think that the uh, sense of search that most young people have, uh, at least if they have the uh, luxury of some time to reflect, 
um, was really the original source. I mean, just around my house, my, my mom had me meditating when I was, you know, I don't know, 14 years old or something. Really? Uh, yeah. 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 She, uh, she was a really deeply spiritual person living in the skin of a 1950s housewife. Uh, it was quite something. Um, and just out of curiosity, was that like a Christian meditation? Or? No, it was, it was actually TM. She was oh. a student of uh, the original, you know, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. But when she saw that um, he was favoring famous people, she knew that there was something fraudulent going on and basically said, nah, not for me. And, and she was ready to, I think, continue her growth anyway. So, uh, you know, she would wake me up uh, before school early enough to <laughs> kind of sit in bed. And I don't know if it was me going back to sleep or doing some transcendental meditation. But anyway, it was, you know, a, a taste of something uh, reflective. But then really the, you know, the search, I think that adolescents feel, uh, I can only say from the inside my skin, I felt it very strongly. Um, and it had a psychological tone. It had a mystical tone. Uh, and of course, the, the adolescent mind tends to uh, idealize and uh, be very self-focused. But nevertheless, you know, it led me to, um, especially, you know, in the 60s with the revolution of teachings coming to the U.S. from Asia, autobiography of a yogi, three pillars of Zen, uh, you know, these things just penetrated me. In fact, uh, I remember after reading Three Pillars of Zen, having a kind of a crisis, do I ordain or not? And it was a sense of, oh, I don't know. It had, you know, again, for someone that age, a real sense of drama. Uh, what do I do? And uh, with a little bit of help from the I Ching, again, remember I'm 17 years old. I've just started college. And, uh, <laughs> I uh, love this. Oh yeah, it was I, I, it was intense. It was very intense. Um, and also, you know, the the stories that you have in um, like autobiography of a yogi. You know, those kind of fabulous uh, stories of uh, mystical experiences of Paramahansa Yogananda and. Uh, but I could go on, you know, I was also at the time uh, then reading um, Tales of the Hasidim and um, mystical poetry, you know, nothing that I think is really all that out of the norm. And it was all, in a sense, preparatory. Uh, Gurdjieff was another big, uh, a big one. And I would say that that was where it got clearer that moment by moment awareness really matters that we're basically living our lives asleep and that the path is about waking up uh, to whatever extent at that age at that time i could understand what waking up meant i did feel something from it i felt it as a musician i felt it as a human being and it just made intellectual sense to me but uh it was when I was actually about to move to the East Coast and I was, um, uh, it, actually my mom comes back into the picture. That's funny. Uh, she said, okay, well, you're moving away. I, you know, I won't see you so much anymore. Uh, I'd like to 
uh, as a gift, send you to this uh, workshop at a ashram that is important to me. And there was this, uh, it was in uh, Western Canada, out in the Kootenays. And I went there and the teacher who was teaching a yogic voice workshop, frankly, wasn't very inspiring. Yet I was already very much at this point. It felt moment by moment kind of um, bright and I won't say intense, I'll say um, uh, alive, shimmering with the aliveness of the inquiry of how to be aware. And it was during that workshop that someone came by and said, there's a Buddhist nun up the road. Do you want to go visit at lunch? And I had no idea what that meant, but I said, sure. And that was that Buddhist nun uh, was Anagarika Dhammadina. And when I met her instantly, I felt uh, inspired. I felt I was moved. This is this person is manifesting this quality of uh, grounded, embodied awareness. I didn't have those words for it, but in retrospect, I feel like what I got from Anagarika was. Uh, uh, an understanding. I don't know if I live it or not, but a, f- a feel for that sense of embodiment of being in your skin and um, manifesting that in how you relate to people and in the direction of your life. And was that the first teacher that you really engaged with or? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. She was, she was, uh, I consider her my root teacher, you might mm-hmm. say. And what she was saying to me, very straightforward was if you want to be more aware, you got to practice, <laughs> you know, and it's like, Oh, that's the missing piece. Right. And she showed me how it, what do you get? You know, you need what, 10 minutes of real meditation instruction. I mean, it doesn't take much right in the, in the, if, if the Tinder is dry, you don't need much of a spark. Mm-hmm. And that's how, that's how it was. Um, if I could just change metaphors, it was like falling off a log. Mm. Just, it was that and that you know you asked why did you stay with it yeah because it completely and uh i'd say unrelentingly has felt right meaningful like it's working like it's the most sensible uh way to live this human experience, to be, you know, to be awake in it. And then as I learned more to live with integrity, to live with ethical care in such a way that the mind can be free and can be manifesting the astonishing potential of the body mind. And I guess, you know, I asked that question because you know we've we've seen you both both of us have seen people who have come to the practice and they get excited in the beginning um but you know just like anagarika said to you like <laughs> it takes work it takes mm-hmm. um some effort yeah. and then a lot of these people a lot of these people fade away and so mm-hmm. i guess you know in that question of why did you stay is you know how did you get through the parts that were 
not feeling rewarding or boring and sure 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 well in one sense um i think it comes down to this teaching of the first noble truth uh the kind of the grinding unsatisfactoriness of a self-obsessed mind right uh it, that hurts yes you know it, it hurts and um i had your you know a pretty decent serving of white male arrogance self-obsession privileged stuff at the time i didn't recognize that that's what was feeling so constraining and so tight the kind of paradox of cutting myself off from others through self-obsession you know just normal self-obsession probably but you know normal suffering i mean it's pretty pretty wretched stuff that you know the mind can cook up and get lost in um the way it fabricates the story of self so feeling that you know just being a sensitive being and feeling that that suffering um would draw me back in there's a teaching that the buddha offers that i find very beautiful in its inviting simplicity where he names diligence as the elephant's footprint you know everything else all the footprints of all the other animals fit within it mm. diligence is something i can relate to you know if you don't like it if it's not going so well okay fine but what do you do you back off do you still have any sense of the direction of the value of uh, of the dhamma of of meditation practice of of intellectual understanding of opening the heart of stillness do you have any sense of the value of that any sense of the value of love of compassion and if you do then bit by bit you do what you can you know we're all humble we're all you know we all have our brokenness but hey welcome to being human you know <laughs> yeah you really talk about the the relational dimensions of the dhamma the how how much this is a relational experience Mm -hmm. And I personally am very drawn to that idea. Can you say a little bit about where that came from for you, how that grew as an idea within you, and then ultimately into the development of insight dialogue? Or maybe it came the other way around. I don't want to. <laughs> very good. I'm glad you said that because that's what I was going to say. It came the other way around. I wish I could just be so clever and have figured it out intellectually and then followed it over to a practice. It wasn't like that. Hmm. I uh, was working with a colleague um, in my in my PhD program, which I did later in my life. And I was all already had been teaching meditation for oh, a lot of years, let's say 15 years or so. And I was teaching my colleague meditation also, and we were also studying dialogue and sort of the meditation infused the dialogue and it began to be something that we wanted to pursue. What is this? You know, something at the moment of interpersonal contact to bring mindfulness right there 
in between two, reflecting back and forth, was instantly uh, and obviously uh, powerful. And so from that seed, uh, we developed uh, an early version of the practice. You know, it had different guidelines and different tone and nearly all of our practice actually was online in uh, chat rooms and this kind of thing. Remember, this was the mid-90s. Right, wow. So AOL chat rooms and this kind of thing. There were no video rooms. And, and we even didn't do much uh, in person because we, we lived in different states. Still, you could feel something, even through the dense interface of text on a screen. You know, you'd be waiting for someone to type something, and that waiting was a in, could be a very intense practice of uh, sati, of mindfulness, uh, and quite concentrated even. Um, but after that initial period, and I began to develop the practice in uh, s- small groups and then gradually in retreats, it took on its component elements uh, became more evident. You know, the the bringing in of, for example, formal Dhamma teachings as that which one talks about in Insight Dialogue made a huge difference in the aiming of the mind during practice. So you're still working with uh, awareness as such, but there's a guide that's saying, hmm, maybe look over here. What's this aspect of experience? Something about, let's say, um, compassion or about superiority or inferiority conceit or about impermanence, um, clinging, grasping, and so on. Likewise, uh, the uh, in-person, especially during the retreats, the dropping down over a period of days into a steadier sati and samadhi, mindfulness and concentration, and the way the relational um, experience I didn't know. I didn't recognize this for quite a long time, but there was an amplification happening and an acceleration of those development of those qualities. All of the enlightenment factors of you know um, mindfulness and investigation of phenomenal experience of mind states, uh, energy and joy, tranquility, concentration and equanimity, really in the presence of another became quite strong and, like I say, steady. And over the course of a retreat where we were interleaving silent practice and insight dialogue, the mm, astuteness, the flexibility of mind, the relaxing in the compassion and care of others, um, the, um, shall we say, the collective aspect of intelligence where it's not just what you perceive but what others perceive about impermanence and the recognizing it in the moment of relational contact, these kinds of things. So it was from this that the import and impact of human relationality became evident. 
And then once I began to see that and be curious about it, to look for it and uh, uh, let it let that understanding further refine how I taught Insight Dialogue and how I taught other teachers to teach Insight Dialogue, the question was always there, what is going on? Why is this so powerful? What is the efficacy, you might say, of human relatedness, of relationality? Could you tell us a little bit about or give us a framework of what Insight Dialogue is for for those who aren't familiar with the form. Yeah, yeah, that's a good, good point. Yeah, good point. It's an interpersonal insight meditation practice. And uh, just what it looks like, you know, very briefly, it could be two people that sit down to meditate together. It could be three or four. It could be 20. I'll use the example of two because it's easier to understand. And it's also in some ways the sort of the central or most, uh, let's say, um, grounding or effective in some ways practice for certain things. So you have two people sitting together. Usually people begin with some silence just to uh, arrive, arrive in their bodies, arrive with each other to settle, uh, to develop even just a little bit of... uh, the mindfulness and the tranquility that are, you know, the basis of uh, other meditative qualities. Then a contemplation is usually introduced uh, along the lines of what I was saying earlier. Um, let's say something on the impermanence of the body, or aging, illness, and death, or uh, you know, some contemplation that has some capacity to open a door, a portal to uh, wisdom, to something that will free the mind. And then if there's a teacher, the teacher might offer that contemplation, then ring the bell to invite you to begin speaking. And sometimes you take turns speaking. Sometimes it's just an open, free flow. The kind of the root practice is for there to be a free flow because that's a sense of entering the moment in this unknowing of what comes next, kind of a sense of being at the edge of the moment. And uh, with a, a set of guidelines to train you in meditating with another, um, you develop you work with those guidelines so that I can be with you and you with me. And we won't forget, for example, to pause. So there's this sense of the sati, the mindfulness that comes up in the pause. And the next guideline is relax, which is uh, pointing towards not just bodily relaxation, which you can't command, but uh, uh, inviting a relaxation of what muscles and so on, but also to accept, to relax the mind, to allow and receive present moment experience. And then open, which is the explicitly relational mindfulness established internally as well as externally. And importantly, both internally and externally. So you're aware of the relational field itself. You're aware of 
of you and I at the same time. Um, and that sense of spaciousness that can arise when the construct of me in here is begins to soften. And as that happens, this next guideline, attuned to emergence, one is, you might say, listening for the impermanence, listening to the flux, or uh, yielding, letting go into the flow of things rather than having the illusion of control. Um, so there's this sense of the Zen teaching, don't know mind, just allowing, don't know mind, right at the edge of present moment. And in that edge, at that edge, is where these last two guidelines speak the truth, listen deeply, right? But if you think of speak the truth as just a mundane understanding of not lying and so on, it's a very good start, but it really is saying what's true now in subjective experience, which is then, of course, only possible to know by way of mindfulness. So speak the truth invites this uh, investigation throughout the body, throughout the mind states. What's true now when I present this contemplation, let's say on death, what's true now? And you're in that pause, you're re relaxing, receiving, you're with another. And as let's now be, rather than in the role of the speaker as a listener, you're pausing and someone is speaking of uh, you know, something that's arisen in relationship to death. And listening deeply is, of course, it's that paying attention and so on. But it's also this quality of emptiness, empty receptivity. There's a, uh, it has a quality of love in it, of just receiving the other in an undefended way. But it also has a quality of um, uh, being like a tree that the breezes just blow right through. And so, um, as you engage with these meditation guidelines, they're helping establish qualities of the body-mind that uh, sustain the meditation even while you're speaking and listening and in that complex moment of interpersonal contact. So it sounds like there is this individual dimension to the practice and then there's this uh, relational mentioned to the practice. And I'm wondering if in your experience, you've seen a blending of that or mm -hmm. how has that appeared for you? I would say that the uh, sense that's evolving from the expansion from the individual sense that is kind of the default for our individualistic culture mm -hmm. um, and expanding to the relational is that it obviously expands as you grow through the relational out to the Mahayana understanding of all beings. So relatedness is uh, with specific individuals is kind of a bridge between the individual and all beings. But there's also a sense of what that means to practice so that all of your moments of interpersonal contact become so much more clearly 
part of the path uh, of developing right view and right intention, right speech, obviously, uh, right action and the ethical is all relational. Right livelihood is our uh, in, in involvement in a system of resource exchange. And then the formal aspects of right effort and mindfulness and concentration, which relational practice comes to, expands a sense of, uh, wow, this path is always present. All of these path factors, whether I'm alone and on the cushion or speaking with friends or informal meditation with spiritual friends. Uh, and there's a kind of a wholeness of the path. Um, what I refer to as a whole life path. So it's sort of like each moment, every moment is part of that path, maybe towards ill, maybe towards good, but with wisdom, it can aim towards the good and nothing is left out. You know, your moments of relationship aren't left out. None of the teachings are left out. I would say that that's the sort of how this is evolving into a larger vision. Over the years, I've talked about the power of the witness. Mm -hmm. And there's this dimension of doing a practice in the sphere of a, of a witness that somehow it brings up the true inter interpenetrated nature of mm -hmm. of whatever this is <laughs> you know what you yeah. want to call it yeah. you know of being conscious mm -hmm. of being conscious yeah or the, mm -hmm. yeah the great consciousness mm -hmm. sure you've led insight dialogue for over 25 years now from these early chat rooms to now these uh, to retreats all over and I'm wondering if there are certain stories or stories of people who have experienced either a transformation or a breakthrough that that really have brought home the power of the practice for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure. One of the, uh, at first to me, surprising insights that I was seeing was people coming to experiences of anatta, of not-self, as they are sitting in front of another person. And the whole sense of me dissolves. And having both experienced that myself in both silent meditation and insight dialogue, uh, I was curious, is this a sort of a, a pale echo of traditional anatta, you know, not self-experience of silent meditation, or is this same or similar? And I had a chance to check that at a retreat I was teaching in Holland because I knew um, as I was uh, interviewing in a group interview, um, a number of people who were actually Vipassana teachers. And I said, okay, wait a minute. I'm going to break the frame here a little bit. I hope it's okay with you. Now, I know that you guys have a lot of um, background in traditional silent practice and quite rigorous, actually. The, I know their teacher. 
uh, uh, teachers. And um, is this anatta that you're talking about, this experience, is it the same thing that you've experienced in your silent practice? And to a person, they said, yes, it is. Only it was, it arose more gently and more quickly. Um, and while it was just as deep, it was more um, lasting, more flexible and enduring post-insight experience. Mm. And um, if that had only happened with that group or only once, it would be a kind of interesting anomaly, right? But I've seen this a lot. Mm. And but you recognize then, you know, as I reflected on it, well, the self, the sense of me is famously built in relationship, right? I mean, you know, the, the infant coming to know who they are with mommy and later with daddy and uh, then forming the identity with their peers after their toddlers and, and little kids. And then in when they're adolescents, it's all about who am I and your peer relationships you know, you form yourself in that. And then of course, by the time you're an adult, you're spending all your time, you know, building up and becoming and maintaining that self. Well, you place this constructing body mind, this mind that fabricates endlessly in front of another person and you pause and there's sufficient steadiness of mind, sufficient brightness of, of mind to continue to observe in that pause as the self tries to assert itself and the sense of being in front of another that you are becoming for, in, in a sense, becoming uh, because of. Uh, how do you see me? Who am I? Um, inferior, superior, Am I, uh, is what I'm saying useful? Um, I care about the pain you are having. So you're not only fabricating self, you're fabricating other out of the flux, the utter flux of experience. A, a, a self and an other are constantly being constellated by the mind, right? I mean, there's nothing but flux when you get down to mm. it. So if we, we invent everything, the whole tableau of this experience of, I am and you are is built out of just rising and vanishing. Of course, that's the case. That's the, the physics or the metaphysics, whatever you want to call it. It's just rising and vanishing. So it's in that, in the simplicity of stillness, but still with the aliveness of interpersonal contact that the emptiness reveals itself right there. And um, so I've seen that a lot. Yeah. And uh, you need to be ready for it. You know, um, one of the things that we're learning is that there's a need to be informed about the uh, trauma implications um, in a society that is racialized and gendered, um, the implications for identity with 
the, how the body manifests needs to be sensitive and caring. And um, at the same time, the way it opens up a quality of compassion for this shared human experience of struggling with being human, struggling with being in relationship can be a quite a profound basis for not just one's uh, sort of uh, personal psychology and not even just one's intimate relations, but one's social manifesting and how the structural issues of living in our culture can bind us or we can be free within them. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Gregory Kramer encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more about his teaching by picking up a copy of his book, Insight Dialogue, The Interpersonal Path to Freedom. If you would like to sit a retreat with Gregory, you can find his retreat schedule at meta.org or Gregory Kramer, that's K-R-A-M-E-R dot org. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Providence Zen Center. If you would like to deepen your practice commitment, I encourage you to explore PZC's residential and retreat opportunities. You can find all of that information at ProvidenceZen.org. If you would like some guidance on how to meditate, there are some videos you can watch at ProvidenceZen.org slash videos. My name is Ian White-Marr. I hope you'll join me again next week.